you know, what we don't want is to mistake a, a hearing for action, right? This is just admiring the problem, you know, but fundamentally, this is, this is no way to run uh, a Department of Defense in, in an era of strategic competition. It is deeply harmful to the United States to be running on a continuing resolution. And, and frankly, although, you know, everyone's got an important, you know, point of view in arguing, you know, it, it, Congress is just not doing their job. They, they need to pass, they need to pass a full budget that allows for us to do what the authorizers have authorized us to do. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Welcome to the new year and to federal budget purgatory. In the final days of 2021, the U.S. House of Representatives and then the Senate passed the National Defense Authorization Act for financial year 2022, which President Joe Biden promptly signed. That bill includes $25 billion more than what the administration asked for to cover all defense-related items. The problem is, we're already in 2022, and Congress hasn't passed a budget. Instead, we're stuck in a continuing resolution purgatory. Lawmakers know this is not how you run a railroad, so this coming Wednesday, the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense is holding a hearing about the impact and they're dragging up the branch chiefs to testify. That means U.S. Space Force Chief General Jay Raymond is going to be there. Now, he's going to be representing $18 billion in personnel, assets, and programs, which is a comparatively small fraction of the entirety of the 2022 Department of Defense budget, which rings in at roughly $740 billion. But strategically speaking, space really punches well above its weight and treasure. Defense space assets serve the entire defense enterprise, service branches, and agencies, which is why this episode is being produced before the hearing takes place. If a budget is not passed, here's just a taster for what won't get done. Transfers of space personnel into the Space Force from the various branches. Transfers to the Space Force of space-based assets and programs like the U.S. Army's Defense Enterprise Wideband SATCOM system and the Navy's Mobile User Objective System. Five National Security Space Launch Vehicles, also known as rockets. Two more next-generation GPS satellites and the purchase of Earth imagery from commercial providers. And that's really just the start of how space, the space business, and defense are being impacted. To get a deep dive, I spoke with Mir Sadat, a former National Security Council Director for Defense and Space Policy and a scholar with West Point's Modern War Institute, and Peter Gerritsen, a book author and podcaster, as well as the editor of one of the most important space reports out there. It's called The State of the Space Industrial Base and Christopher Stone, who is a senior fellow for space studies for the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Research Center. Gentlemen, welcome to the downlink. Let's start with a quick round of introductions. Briefly, tell us about yourself, your background, and what you're working on right now. Let's start with Mir. 
Hi, thank you, uh, Laura, for the invitation, and uh, thank you to Chris and Pete um, for uh, being on the panel with me. Um, I hope we can contribute. Um, so I am currently with the Atlantic Council as a uh, senior fellow, and I'm with uh, Modern War uh, Institute at West Point as an adjunct scholar. And uh, previously, I was on the National Security Council uh, working on space and defense and maritime issues. Pete, what about you? So I'm currently a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council and director of their space policy initiative. I host the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm the author of a recent book, Scramble for the Skies. And I was the editor of uh, the State of the Space Industrial Base. And I'm currently working on how to move those recommendations from the State of the Industrial Base into U.S. policy. And Chris? Hey there. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's uh, Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in D.C. area. I used to be a, uh, a appointee uh, in space policy office in the Pentagon. I've worked for a couple U.S. senators, and I've been a career space operations officer and active duty reserve in the National Guard for close to 20 years and uh, published a, a book called Reversing the Tao back a few years ago on uh, Chinese viewpoints on space deterrence and war fighting. And uh, most recently, I am um, going to be uh, rolling out a paper regarding nuclear thermal propulsion and how uh, the Chinese are working toward a maneuver warfare strategy in space coming up on the 14th of this month. So uh, lots going on. And that's at the Mitchell Institute, isn't it? Correct. The, uh, the Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence is a, a subset group of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Now, with introductions done, let's set the table. Just before the new year, President Joe Biden signed the National Defense Authorization Act for financial year 2022, and it authorized policies and programs that carried a higher comprehensive price tag than what the administration actually asked for. Uh, by about $25 billion, I think. The United States Space Force is authorized to receive $10.2 billion, but there's no appropriations bill. Chris, you're the guy on this panel who worked on the Hill for two U.S. senators, no less. Can you explain what's the holdup on funding, seeing as we are in 2022 and there are a few procurement contracts and programs set to kick off soon? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, um, we're, we're in a continuing resolution and we've been extended on that at least once. And there's even rumors of a year long CR. And uh, the reason for that is, you know, primarily just because of how close the votes are in the Senate. It's, uh, it's a 50-50 Senate with a one vote split with the vice president with a slim majority for the Democratic side. With, so, so Schumer kind of runs the show there with, with McConnell as minority leader. And as a result of that, um, you've got a lot of people posturing for upcoming election year, which also adds to the drama. And as a result of that, uh, a lot of people are trying to show that they can get what they need or want and or stop things from happening that they don't like or don't want. And so as a result, um, you spend a lot of the, of the budget cycle time over the last year used for, for other reasons, um, for other issues and other things such as COVID relief, budgetary, uh, you know, infrastructure discussions, things of that sort to try to help the president with his agenda. 
Um, and as a result, the, the NDAA kind of became a squished compromise at the last, at the 11th hour in December, when typically it's supposed to be done around Memorial Day, summertime, and in time for the changeover with the budget to be done separately by October 1st. And obviously we're not, we're not even close to that. So that's kind of what you're seeing is just a lot of different posturing individual members of the Senate have the ability to hold stuff up. Uh, and as a result, you're, you're seeing a lot of that activity. So everyone's trying to do negotiations behind closed doors to try to get something through. And even though you have the NDA, like you said, with the, about $20 billion or so dollars more proposed from the author, authorizer side, that has to be agreed to by the appropriators. And as a result, we still haven't seen any budgets and they're not even looking at whether or not they can make the February deadline before the CR runs out. So this is the reason behind why the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense is holding a hearing on Wednesday. The title of the event is Impact of Continuing Resolutions on the Department of Defense and Services. The witness list includes all of the uniformed heads of the military branches and the Defense Department's comptroller. I always get a bit uneasy, though, when I see all the uniforms. I fear that they are simply being used as a backdrop. And of course, they have to be on their best behavior. And none are keen to say they can't make it work with what they've got, unlike, say, a political appointee. So the question that I'm burying here is, is this lineup really the best lineup for uh, folks to answer the questions that need to be asked? You know, is even the title right? And for that, I'd like to first hear from Mir. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, that's their job. They're, they're supposed to give the best military advice to uh, those that they uh, serve under and Congress that, that oversees them. So uh, they, they're going to do their best, uh, given uh, their knowledge of what to give to the oversight committees. So one of the things that I think is very important, and I would hope that would be brought up is for readiness, a large part of our military's readiness uh, comes from the reserve component. Uh, uh, and having been a naval reservist, uh, I can attest to a lot of our deployments or mobilizations uh, were filled uh, by reservists. And the Space Force, for example, right now does not have a reserve component. Uh, and that was once something that was hotly debated uh, in the lead up to the compromise to the NDAA. And so uh, that had become a little politicized. So I hope that, uh, you know, Congress asks the Air Force chief and also the chief of the space, uh, chief of space operations as to uh, do they need a reserve component? And if so, what do they envision for that? Currently in the Air Force, 25% of uh, the Air Force's mission was done by Air Force reservists. Um, they are currently uh, stranded in the Air Force and so they need to be evacuated from the other service to the Space Force. Uh, and so I would I would imagine that for readiness, uh, every service would need to have a reserve component uh, and not to be confused with a uh, sort of guard component. I'm not saying that it's either or, but it, it, that needs that that's a priority that needs to be asked. And I know it's a politicized question. And I'm, I'm sure that our, our military uh, generals will be uh, able to answer that adequately. Pete, Chris, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, is is the title for this hearing even correct? Uh, are they really asking uh, the right people to, you know, give the the real skinny? Well, I'll, I'll start well, and then Peter will, because I guess, can jump in. I'll just mention that if you look at the historical times that they have special hearings like this, 
they typically don't bring in the civilian or the military leadership. They usually save those folks for what's called posture hearings for the budget cycle in the early spring or, or the readiness hearings later on. Um, what you usually see is they usually bring in subject matter experts that are, have a little more freedom to speak because when whenever the administration sends out their statement of administration policy, as it's called, or a SAP, they, they pretty much that restrains anybody within the executive branch from speaking contrary to that. And so as a result, they're, they're pretty much committed to their budget until the Congress makes their, their statement. Um, and so usually you'd see guys like one of us or, or similar to us that would come up and say, what are the impacts of this, whether it's GAO or, or Congressional Budget Office folks, things of that sort that can talk about impacts to readiness or things of that sort. But for whatever reason, they're, they're bringing in the, the chiefs and we'll just have to see how they how they respond. So I, I would guess that, you know, like with a lot of politics, you know, part of it is theater to help bring about some action. And hopefully this is to dramatize to, you know, their fellow congressmen that this will be impactful and that it will have a negative effect on readiness. And since I don't think anyone in the administration themselves uh, you know, wants a continuing resolution as it hurts the entire executive branch. I'm, I, I'm quite certain that the message won't be, there will be no impact, you know, but I think it certainly helps, you know, to have individuals who are, you know, unmuzzled and can tell it as it is, because, you know, what we don't want is to mistake a, a hearing for action, right? This is just admiring the problem, you know, but fundamentally, this is, this is no way to run uh, a Department of Defense in, in an era of strategic competition. It is deeply harmful to the United States to be running on a continuing resolution. And and frankly, although you know everyone's got an important you know point of view in arguing, you know it, it Congress is just not doing their job. They they need to pass a can they need to pass a full budget that allows for us to do what the authorizers have authorized us to do. And and Pete. What space programs will be most affected and what's their strategic intent and value? And don't be shy about including the National Geospatial Agency or the National Reconnaissance Agency or DARPA in your answer, because space isn't just the U.S. Space Force. Right. So, you know, let's just talk, you know, first in general uh, about how this affects all the all the services and all the agencies. And then I'll talk about how it specifically hurts space. So in general, what a continuing resolution does is it freezes the spending in exactly the categories delineated for the previous year for the next year. So even though all the services plan five years out, and even though you know, the Congress you know, looks to authorize that budget uh, with step-ups usually for certain programs that are going to get enhancements, um, you know, all of that is a fiction because it's year by year. So all the things that we've planned to level up, um, you know, in any service or to stop to, to, uh, to not be wasting money is now frozen in a way that you can't move forward and you may be having to spend things uh, wastefully. But the Space Force is in a particularly unique position because it is right in a growth spurt and it's not alone. The, uh, the SDA, the Space Development Agency, is also at a place where it is ready to start moving from small-scale tests to purchasing of a major tranche. And to give you a sense of scale, for the Space Force alone, they're, they're going to lose about $2 billion between the President's 22 submission 
and the 21's enactment. And that includes like nearly 700 million in RDT&E or, you know, the, the research development, you know, testing uh, of their systems. Now they'll lose a significant amount in, in O&M too, but to give you a sense of how this affects, you know, if you have got a contract with a company and they've done some initial work, some studies, and now they're ready and you have budgeted to take them to the next level. Now they're essentially, you know, you have to hope that they can survive for multiple months with no, you know, additional beneficial work uh, and hope that they may remain a viable company and don't just go away. So that's impacted. And then for workforce, particularly in areas like the Space Force that's growing you're talking about an inability to hire on the order of hundreds of key uh, subject matter experts that are not going to be available in the key areas you want. So it hurts your workforce, it hurts your industrial base, it prevents you from moving forward to get a hypersonic tracking layer. And another thing it does is it slows you down because for instance, they, the Space Force had planned to move from three national security launches to five. Well, if they don't get the additional money that they were planning for, now they can't launch as many times as they want, which slows down what they're doing. They have to keep older assets on station. And then and that means that they also can't make use of the savings. So, you know, there are numerous significant problems that happen. And, and it's not just that you're waiting around. As an example, Air Force Research Lab uh, has a program called SPIDER. And Spider, you know, early on was counting on a certain level of effort uh, to, to move forward. And because they did not get that at the time they needed it, that they'd programmed for it, they lost more than a year in progress in a, in a competitive domain uh, with, our, with our adversaries that really makes a difference. So you cannot underestimate how significant, you know, right when you're starting your sprint, you know, versus a, another competitor nation, right in your growth spurt to suddenly, you know, pull somebody back and say, no, 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 go back to walking. It's really harmful to U.S. interests. Mir, Sadai, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything Pete said. Um, so the major pieces in our economy right now, uh, the space sector, right, the new space uh, industries are the ones that are hiring like mad, they're taking off. And uh, a lot of the regulations uh, unleashed some responsible corporate behavior there. Um, and so the, the problem is now if, if we are doing exactly what has been done, uh, Pete's assessment is very accurate that all of those jobs will be stymied and new growth will be you know, stopped as well. So you know, going back to it is that there's a general concern for right, that the US has fallen behind uh, namely China and uh, AI, cybersecurity, and space. And these are the industries that are integral to th the Space Force, NASA, and and uh, the, the new space economy. And so the, the problem, uh, as Pete illuminated, is that as a, as a state capitalist economy without a free economic market and, and legislative constraints like the US, China can allocate all kinds of resources at will for undertaking any types of priorities, right? At any time, constantly. And so uh, as we look at the last past decade, the growth in uh, China's uh, um, you know, annual military expenditures and more, more importantly, its output has outpaced that of the United States. 
And uh, you know they've had several years of double-digit growth. Their defense budget is still growing at an excess of you know six to seven percent annually. Uh, and even if Congress appropriates this NDAA, right, uh, which is more a little bit more uh, than what the uh, uh, administration asked for, the budget will only have grown by less than four percent, right, in comparison to China. Uh, that that that's not a lot. Um, and it is true that in nominal terms, you know, we the United States spend nearly three times what China does for its defense. But China, you know, Chinese official figures don't really reflect all of their expenditures on defense. They they hide some of that stuff, and they do not even include some of their space programs or uh, their 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 navy, their naval and maritime fleet, their civilian maritime fleet, uh, and even some of their research efforts. So so there, there's a little bit of uh, uh, misnomer that you know uh, they are not spending as much, they're not investing as much, they are not growing as much much that we, we are spending way too much. We need to hold back. These are all misnomers that, that we need to get through. And, uh, you know, hopefully these these are things that, uh, you know, government the government is, uh, you know, explaining to our oversights in Congress so that they can, uh, uh, you know, they've authorized and appropriate the funding and time for all of this. So that that is sort of something that we need to think about um, that, you know, that 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 we're facing an adversary uh, and a competitor who uh, doesn't have to act with responsibilities or one-year budget cycles. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe China uh, broke their own record in the number of launches in 2021. I'm not sure what that number is, but I've seen headlines to that effect, and I wouldn't be surprised because it seems like China has a launch about every other week and sometimes t- two in a week. What do you think, Chris? Well, I, I think all the points are good. I'll just add one other bit here. Um, at the basic level, since the Space Force is is under the Department of the Air Force, you and, and I know we're talking broadly, Department of Defense broadly here, but from a Space Force standpoint, if you don't have a full-up budget, you can't transfer the Army and the Navy systems and personnel that were to be transferred until you get the money to pay for it. So that holds that back. You have about 60% of their uh, warfighting capability that's not aligned to them in the National Guard. And you have the budget of the Space Force is only 2.5% of the entirety of the DOD budget. When you include that with the Department of the Air Force as a whole, over the last 27 years, uh, they've been pretty much the least funded of all the service departments. And a lot of their resources were shifted to other departments to the tune of over a trillion dollars or 53 billion a year. So First, the, the Space Force isn't sufficiently funded to do what it needs to do. It's not getting its transfers. And one of the main reasons of creating a Space Force in the first place was consolidation of everything under one, one, uh, one leader, if you will, one, one, one organized train and equip organization that can do all this necessary stuff that's, ne- that's needed for, the, for space superiority. So the CR makes matters worse um, for the Department of the Air Force, but it also really hurts the Space Force because they're, they're, people in Congress are impatient uh, of them being able to do their mission. But if they're not properly resourced, you're not going to be able to get much beyond the legacy missions of supporting other services and being able to have the independent resources and capabilities needed to deter and, if necessary, fight and win wars that are in space. So a lot of, lot of issues with this. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think it's uh, the allocation for the transfer of programs from the other branches as well as personnel is about $1.1 billion, and that is only in the FY2022 budget. So without passing this budget bill, it's just not going to happen. 
Final round, gentlemen. If there was one question or a point that should be made at the hearing on Wednesday about space, very specifically about how these continuing resolutions are affecting it and our uh, hopes for the future and meeting the competition and uh, hopefully passing them, what would it be and why? What's the context? Pete, why don't you start? Well, first of all, I think we have to contextualize it in terms of our long-term national interests and strategic competition, uh, mostly when it comes to space vis-a-vis the position that China can uh, is, is doing such you know, a fabulous job moving ahead of us. And I think the really the issue that needs to come up is that you know the Space Force is a new service dependent upon appropriation to do new things, especially research and development, procurement enhancement, you know, and, and implementing human capital plans, you know, right as it's just figured out all these things, catching it, you know, midstream is going to, you know, stop our nation from strengthening. So I think the issue is stunted growth, readiness in terms of readiness for the future. And that readiness is built today, you know, the impact on the industrial base, making sure that Congress does not work across purposes, stunting the growth of exactly what it's what it's exhorting the military to get busy on to be competitive in space. It's it's not the time to to trip it. Chris, yeah, I, I would say if there was one point that I hope somebody on that committee asks is reinforcing the point that that the will of the Congress in establishing the space force in particular was that it was to be an armed force, and the whole point was to provide a service that could provide the the capabilities and the forces, i.e. weapon systems capable of deterring the Chinese and the Russians from from doing what they've been showing that they're interested in doing, which is a rapid and destructive form of space warfare using everything from kinetic interceptor missiles to lasers to vehicles that can come up and snuggle and maybe even tear things apart with robotic arms. But at the same time, uh, that if you really want to see an armed force, you got to have the ability to do that. And that means you have to do more than what Air Force Space Command did, which is a legacy support force. That's important, but until you can get the funding that's necessary to speed things up, it's gonna continue to take longer and longer to equip the Space Force with the ability to do real deterrence and warfighting operations in space to protect our vital interests up there and lots of other satellite constellations that have become essentially critical infrastructure for not just our military, but for our way of life, our economic power and influence, and and just society in general. So that's one difference between the other service branches and the Space Force is that they're supposed to be an armed force, but they also have serious impacts across the various instruments of national power and affect everyday lives of everybody. So 2.5% insufficient, and you have a CR that's not even allowing that to progress um, with the transfer forces and personnel and things that we talked about earlier. So I, I hope that's one of the biggest points that they that they take across that that that, that discussion. And Mir, you've got the last word. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Pete and, and Chris said. I think what they need to do is just look at the NDA that they just passed because it, it directs the DoD to establish uh, pilot programs that will aim to facilitate acquisition of new technologies, right? And so th- this is kind of an important issue um, because uh, you know the provision actually instructs DoD to consider. Uh, specific technologies such as, you know, offensive missile capability, space-based assets, 
of course, we mentioned personnel and quality of life improvements and then energy generation and storage uh, and other things as well. But the, the importance of this is that the, the, the reason for these issues is, you know, what Chris mentioned, that the acquisition system was broken. The Space Force is going to come here to make things leaner, faster, accessible, uh, so that fast-paced technologies, you know, these exponential technologies can come on online and be incorporated. Uh, I wrote about this in the Hill uh, in October of 2020. Basically, our, our system or our acquisition structure is, is well suited for what I call incremental technologies, right? Uh, your tanks, fighter aircraft carriers and that kind of stuff. But we're still st struggling to bring on exponential technologies. Uh, and because those are not those are not normal to what we uh, feel like in the military, right? And so these technologies are artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and of course, everything that is space technology is uh, exponential. And so these are things that uh, we need to adapt and, and move forward towards uh, bringing in to our acquisition system and melding our acquisition system so that they can bring these in faster and, and roll them out faster because the days of having tanks and carriers all over the world uh, is great, but if you don't have the technological capability to find, fix, and finish those things, the adversaries, you're not going to get there. And all of those things are uh, exponentially advancing. You had the Air Force's uh, CIO recently talk about how you know behind we are in cybersecurity. So that is an important piece that I think we have to think about. And we have to also know that the um, America's private sector cannot really make this up on their own. There needs to be that public uh, financing aspect to it and if we think that you know everybody's comparing this sort of like to the sputnik shock you know we were comparing uh to eras before uh but we you know as pete had mentioned we are spend we're not spending at all even a fraction of what we did in uh that era uh on m or or s t or r d or any of that stuff so we need to really sort of kick it up a notch because if we don't have uh that sort of advantage our global competitors will fill in the gap and they are you know, heavily funding innovation uh, and that they, they are using that for dual purposes. And so with us not having a competitive advantage, we are no longer going to be able to uh, deter other nations from taking actions that hurt our interests or allies uh, or allies who may be pressured by undemocratic powers, right? And uh, our inaction could also increase our margin of error in assessing the intentions of those uh, strategic competitors and adversaries, their capabilities, and, and the trade-off is just too high to pay because if conflict should occur, uh, it will be detrimental for, you know, not just the Americans and that other competitor, but probably everybody on earth. So we must really think about that and then put that first and start thinking about, uh, you know, these other uh, horse tradings that goes on in Congress. Because uh, if we don't think about the, the, the strategic picture of what that means for our nation, and for our allies, then we've really missed a point. Thank you, Mir, Pete, and Chris. It's been great having you guys on the downlink. You've all got to come back. Thank you so much, Laura. Sounds good. Thank you, Laura. That's it for this week. And remember, that hearing is on Wednesday, so be sure to check back with the Defense and Aerospace Report for the latest defense news and insights brought to you by Vago Maradian, who is the editor for all of the Def Aero Report podcasts. And check out Cavus Ships, which is our weekly podcast about the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.